everyone. Good day to you all. How are you all doing today? This is Thosh Collins, one of the co-founders of Welfare Culture. And today I'll be hosting this podcast episode all about indigenous fatherhood and parenting. Right now, Native Country is a resurgence of Indigenous fatherhood teachings and practices, as well as an evolving role of Indigenous fathers in their communities today. And this conversation with my friend, Dr. Joshua Allison Burbank, was actually from a Facebook Live event during one of uh, Native Wellness Institute's power hours that I hosted a couple months back. Josh is a Diné Pueblo man and a father of two from Tohachi, New Mexico on the Navajo Nation. And he received his MA in 2015 and a PhD in 2020 in speech language pathology from the University of Kansas. He also attended the University of New Mexico, completing undergraduate degrees in speech and hearing sciences. And Josh's research and clinical interests include autism spectrum disorder, communications disorders associated with cleft and cranial fascial differences, disability surveillance, early intervention, and cultural responsive service delivery. Josh is also an adjunct lecturer at the University of Vermont Medical Center and has facilitated numerous workshops and technical assistance related to early childhood programming and diversity initiatives across native country and right now currently josh works as a speech language pathologist at the northern navajo medical center in shiprock new mexico i have also had the honor of co-authoring with josh a chapter called american indian fathers and their sacred children in a recently published book called handbook of fathers and childhood development which i'll put a link into the description of this episode and so i hope you enjoy this conversation and that you find it insightful i want to go ahead and just um give thanks to everyone for joining us i want to give thanks to the day here give thanks for our, our life that we have and want to give thanks for today that we're able to wake up right here and that we have air to breathe we have water to drink we have food to eat we have mother to walk upon and we have the fire that keeps us warm and um, we have um um, all of the animals that walk amongst us are four-legged ones, the winged ones, the finned ones, all the small microorganisms in the soil here give thanks to them for doing their roles in our world and keeping our ecosystem together and giving thanks to all of our, our sun, our moon, our stars, all of our, our, our stars up there, our ancestors um, that keep our entire universe together and give thanks to all of the uh, all the babies that are in the world today. I want to give thanks to all the mothers that are, are childbearing today, all the fathers that are taking care of the children today, all the mothers that might be in labor. Um, give thanks to all those. Give thanks to the mothers that might be carrying the young ones right now at this time. I want to give thanks to all of our elders for continuing to pass on the knowledge and um, wisdom that they have uh, was passed on to them. And I give thanks to all of the Hukyokam, our ancestors that have moved on, that got, that work with us and they guide us today. We'll open up our hearts and minds to allow them to uh, continue to guide us in a way that allows us to think, feel, and act just like our ancestors. And I want to give thanks to the Native Wellness Institute and every other organization that has responded um, responsibly during the pandemic here and 
had offered ways of, of healing in spaces, cyber spaces of healing for all of our people that are struggling during this time as we're living through COVID-19. And I also want to put our hearts to minds together and, and send out all of that energy and, and strength um, and medicine to all of our relatives out there in, in all over the world, not just Native country who are struggling right now with addiction, depression, um, and are struggling with, uh, um, you know, and maybe an ab abusive relationship, abusive home um, that are looking to heal from that. Um, sending energy out, love to those that um, are currently grieving the loss of one of their loved ones. Maybe they weren't able to join them at their funeral, or maybe they weren't able to join them at the last few moments in the hospital due to the way things are. So we wanted to uh, send our thoughts and prayers, our energy to wrap those people up and wrap their heart, wrap their mind seven times and lift their, lift their spirit up and let them know that people are praying for them and healing for them. But I just wanted to take a moment to give thanks um, for those things uh, before we jump into our conversation today. And I wanted to um, turn it over to my, my brother Josh here and allow him to introduce himself and tell us about the important work that he's doing in working communities and working with uh, working with parents and working with children and child development and literacy. Lots of great work that, that Josh is doing here. So I want to go ahead and turn it over and just uh, let you tell us about yourself and your work. Oh, yeah, gosh, brother, for um, giving me the time. Thank you, um, Native Wellness Institute, Well for Culture, for um, allowing the space across Indian country to um, have these conversations about healing and um, resiliency and just having this a sacred space. We're not able to do that around the fireplace this time, but um, at least we have this this gathering and, and acknowledge everything. So thank you, Thosh, for opening 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 us up and um, acknowledging all the beans around us and all the stuff that drives who we are as, as um, uh, two-legged people, ten-fingered people. So, um, Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Joshua Allison Burbank. Um, I come from the Navajo Nation and Acoma Pueblo. My mom is, is Navajo, and um, I grew up in um, Tehachi, New Mexico, which is on the Navajo Nation. And my dad is Acoma Pueblo and um, lives in Anzac, um, New Mexico, right on the Acoma Pueblo um, Nation, um, uh, just west of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be here. I'm happy to share a little bit about what I know um, about child development, about fathering, and about what it takes to start that journey of healing, of um, acknowledging the stuff that makes us who we are as, as indigenous men, as indigenous father, and to touch on what Dosh and I have, have mentioned before as this um, conscious or intentional effort to be well, to be okay to, as we start this journey. And I think what's important, and, and, and we'll talk about a book chapter that we wrote together over the past year about how we are very early and will be the first ones to acknowledge that we aren't aren't the go-to we're not the um we're not the perfect fathers we're not the perfect men we have all kinds of things that have made us who we are today things we've overcome things that we're still taking on trying to dismantle and better understand and figure out kind of how does that impacting the heart our hearts and how is that impacting our, our brain as well 
So, but this is a little bit more about myself. Um, I'm a speech language pathologist. Um, I, I'm a trained licensed speech language pathologist. Uh, speech language pathologist is someone that works with individuals with communication and um, developmental disorders. Um, I went to the University of New Mexico and got my undergraduate degree in speech and hearing sciences. And around 2013, I relocated to um, Lawrence, Kansas, where I started my master's program in speech language pathology and decided to stay at the University of Kansas to get my PhD uh, with the focus on neurodevelopmental disabilities and disorders, as well as um, public health. Um, I also have a certificate, graduate certificate in public health from Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. And so I've mentioned that um, not to not to talk too much about my educational training because those degrees are just papers on the wall um, where I have learned about myself as a male, as a man, as a father was in kind of the most um, unique in um, simple spaces that many of us can relate to in some way. Things like being out in the prairie or out on the hills or the woods during hunting or during ceremonies in the Kiev or Hogan. There was a lot of learning happening during those times, early on in childhood, adolescence, and my early adulthood life as well. And I go back to those now as I reflect on who, what's made me who I am today, uh, what helps me to become a better father, a better clinician, how do I reconnect with my community after leaving for, for a couple of years and then coming back. And so I, I kind of go on a little tangent there for a, per, for a reason there, and it's because a lot of learning a lot of relearning happens outside of the Western um, type of um, classroom or, or teaching learning space, like a university or a school. The learning is happening and the relearning is starting to happen more by going back to those ancestral ways of interpreting um, life, interpreting um, how we interact with animals, how we interact with the world, but also most importantly, how we interact with young people the humans, the babies, the young ones who are most vulnerable, the most moldable, and are very sacred individuals. I want you to think to what happens when new parents or grandparents, whoever it is, has a new child or a new child enters their life. There's a lot of emotions racing, a lot of, a lot of hormones, a lot of chemical exchanges happening there if you want to get real sciency. There's a lot of release of happy hormones, hormones that make us cry, hormones that, hormones that make us excited, hormones that make us feel love. That happens with that young baby, the um, and I had my own experiences with the, my 10-year-old son, Caleb, um, who um, started me on this parent journey back in 2010. And I also have a four-year-old daughter who um, uh, was born in 2016. And both of them have been uh, a driving force in my, my journey to better understand myself and my role within the community, within the earth and universe too, as a male person. And so... What I want to talk about today, and I'm hoping Brother Tosh can jump in as well to you as we um, introduce our book chapter and this, and this conscious, this intentional effort to be well, to make ourselves better, to start that journey. Um, because uh, as, as we know, across Indian country, there are many stressors out there, whether it's poverty, whether it's, it's uh, being in a rural setting, not having access to traditional foods, or acculturation, losing language and culture. We all know those things are important factors when we're trying to start this healing journey as indigenous people. 
But then kind of going back to uh, my role, my work in the community, I work as a speech language pathologist at Northern Navajo Medical Center, which is in um, Natani Nez, uh, part of Navajo Nation, Shiprock, New Mexico. Um, I, I work with Indian Health Services. That's my day job. I work across the lifespan. Um, I, I, I work with young children with developmental disabilities like autism spectrum disorder, Down syndrome, global developmental delays. But I also work with their elder population as well, too, those with dementia, those with um, recovering from strokes. And now this past year, a good chunk of my work has gone towards the COVID relief effort and the COVID response um, as, as a healthcare um, system in this area, but also um, treating and understanding how the Colson Saigi is impacting the brain, the body, the heart of Navajo and other native populations as well too. Um, and so it's it's been an interesting year and um, I'm, it, I'm honored to join you on this final day of the Gregorian calendar to um, acknowledge that we are making strides in our effort to heal and, our, and our, we're making strides in our effort to better understand ourselves as indigenous people. So what I have to offer today is my work as a speech language pathologist, my journey as a father, and also my work in emerging understanding of how Western forms of research and how indigenous forms of understanding and interpreting the world come together to impact things like fathering, that impact things like healthy foodways, things that impact how we understand and respond to things like historical trauma, toxic masculinity, gender inequality, and where do we start? Or what, how do we go back to those traditional ways of doing things so we can really understand and focus on wellness as an indigenous community? I mentioned earlier that I'm a, a, I'm a speech language pathologist or speech therapist, as sometimes it's called. My typical day or my best days are when I'm around young children, my own children, but also other native children that I work with either in a clinic setting or in an early childhood setting. I like this population mostly because I feel like I'm still doing a lot of growing up as a, as a male person. And so I can relate to a lot of these kids and be silly and have fun as well. But this change around preschool between three, four, and five, it's a sacred time for young children. That's when personality is developing, there's a, there's a language explosion. Now it's also when kids start to verbally or in, in some form, whether it's sign language or gestures, they start to express themselves. You start to see, you start to see happiness. You start to see words for excited about love, but you also see words like angry, I'm upset, I'm unhappy, I'm frustrated, I'm crying, I'm sad, all those other things. So I feel like that's such an important time because emotions drive everything. Emotions are that heart language. And even as a baby, babies, before baby even comes to, to the physical world, baby's feeling stuff, listening to mom, listening to dad's voice, they're responding, they're having an emotional response. And also when that baby's born, there's a, a burst of emotions with the baby crying, that, that first cry, those, those first um, sounds that the baby makes. And also um, with, with um, parents as well too, and, and grandparents and community, there's, there's joy, there's laughter, there's, there's, there's crying because this baby comes and so it's uh, again i draw attention because i i'm a child development person i'm interested in young child development and as we 
reflect on important milestones in child development, things like first laugh parties, first word parties, um, coming of age ceremonies, um, all these things are tied to emotions, changes in emotions, whether it's language, communication, or um, some type of achievement that happens, there's an emotional response. And so I want us to be thinking about that as we think more about the role of fathers grandfathers, males, brothers, brothers, uncles, whatever, um, young children. And also what's happening, there's an interchange happening there amongst emotional response by the child and also emotional response by the male. And so there's there's so much we can talk about and unta- mm-hmm. tackle in our book our book chapter um, that just got um, published a couple months ago. Um, it's it's the, it's called the Handbook on Fathers and um, Child Development. Dash and I wrote the chapter titled American Indian and Alaska Native Fathers and Their Sacred Children. Um, and you can go to Springer Publishing and check it out. Um, contact us if you want more information, like a link, or want to want to get the citation as well. Um, but to kind of sum it up, we talk about our own experiences as fathers, the work we've been doing as clinicians, researchers, wellness advocates, and how are we taking on health disparities? How are we taking on inequalities that impact not just fatherhood, but parenting and at the community level and also at a larger systemic issue as well? What do we need to do in order to take back child rearing practices? What do we need to take back or incorporate to better understand what child welfare means? Like, what does it mean for a child to be healthy in a native community? What factors? whether it's historical trauma, forced relocation, adoption, foster systems, how do those impact that young individual's heart and their emotions, their emotional response to their caregivers, their community, and to the universe as well, too. So um, uh, check it out. And if there's key things that you want to highlight, Dash, or, um, and we can we can touch on that a little bit yeah. more. But to... Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, there's a lot right there. And I want to kind of um, rewind back to something you, you mentioned there. And really just um, want to also echo the, the importance of understanding that the current movement that we are in in Native country to heal and to, and to acknowledge historical, cultural, complex trauma and, and heal from that through the ways of our ancestors that within that whole movement, the the, the practice of fatherhood, indigenous fatherhood practices are, are emerging out of that as well and revitalizing that. Um, also, um, I always say that evolving too, we're evolving in, a, in another role in which we hadn't had in pre- previous times as a result of, um, you know, acculturation, a post-colonial era where a lot of our families are now disconnected and no longer able to work and uh, be interdependent in that way. Now we are in this nuclear format, um, standard American um, type of family structures, which pre- which we've seen in, in recent times has presented some challenges. But I wanted to, to even just kind of uh, speak to some of the the um, the neuroendocrine changes that happen um, in the father, in the brain of the father, um, the heart. Um, as we know, there's been a lot of studies that have been done upon the the bonding and the changes, the hormonal changes, the the different um, activation of, of brain center, certain areas in the brain, um, and, and with the mama. 
but not so much even with the father. And, and so I kind of, if you want to just kind of shed some light and talk about what happens, the brain changes, the, the oxytocin, all these kinds of things and, and, and how that affects the father um, during the sacred time of, of child, child rearing and, and, and kind of tying that back to almost like a historical um, perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, an important phenomenon to better understand as well. And I feel like as indigenous people, we, we've always had an understanding of what happens um, during this time when a child's born or when there's something that happens that the father achieves or accomplishes, there, there's an emotional response. And so again, it's back to emotions and what drives emotions. It's these chemical changes in the brain, um, that the heart and the brain and your, your voice and your, your breath, all sacred elements uh, to the body. And I think there's a lot of crossover amongst some different tribes and other indigenous communities across the world as well. It's, there aren't just five senses. We have multiple senses. We have dreams. We have stuff in our voice and just there, there's power there. And again, it goes back to, again, the brain, what's happening in there. And there's a lot of unique things and special things that are happening in the brain in stressful situations, but also in loving, um, powerful, sacred um, situations like childbirth or connecting with the relative or being with loved ones or participating in ceremonies. A lot of neural um, chemical changes happening um, during those times. But first I wanna talk about stress. And I think as, as a wellness institute and as a, as a moving effort to acknowledge that, the stressors of life, poverty, um, low, um, other um, socioeconomic factors, uh, cultural language loss definitely impact and contribute to increased stress. We know that a lot of negative things that happen in Indian country is directly tied back to the very horrible things that have happened in our history, not just in our generation, but several generations back as well. And those are still impacting us today, and those are, that's added stress. In public health, there's, there's, there's concepts such as um, social determinants of health, and our, our relatives across the waters, uh, uh, New Zealand and, and some of these other areas, are starting to um, introduce other kinds Concepts such as indigenous determinants of health. I think that's so important to, to understand as, as we're trying to start these wellness efforts and initiatives too, is that there are other factors that increase, contribute to that increased stress and that increase um, um, negative response to all the things happening in, in our world as indigenous people. And so things like cortisol, we know is directly tied to wellness and obesity and all these other negative things as well. We know that um, when there's someone's exposed to violence or a child's exposed to violence, that there's elevated stress amongst that whole family dynamic as well too. So what do we do? Where do we start as wellness people? What, what What's a crash course on neurochemicals and what can we um, do to focus and understand what's happening in that native male brain when the positive things are happening? And so just real simple, um, there's two, um, two hormones out there that I want to focus on, oxytocin, the love hormone, and dopamine, the reward hormone. And so I want you to, I'm going to present a scenario to you, and uh, many of us probably can relate to this, especially those who are hunters or have family members who are hunters. And this is a story that Dash and I connected with, connected um, with, some time ago as well, because we had similar um, interpretations and observations as well, as well as what was happening to our, our own bodies as, as when we're out hunting, but also what have we seen during um, hunting trips and uh, hunting experiences with other men as well from our community. And so if you look at hunting videos of um, 
not natives going out and hunt. It's it's usually for a trophy or some type of immediate reward. And so what we sometimes see when an animal is taken in, in a non-native um, space, we, we see kind of a, 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 a rapid excitement happen in um, the hunter or whoever's taking the animal as well. It's almost like a, a it's an adrenaline rush is, is what it is. And you see cheering, you see clapping, um, and you see um, kind of um, a real emotional, strong emotional response. With native hunters, the traditional hunting methods, traditional gathering methods, farming and planting, we see an emotional response, an intense one, but it's very different though. We see emotion, we see um, gratitude, we see grown men cry, we see grown men tell stories, we see grown men um, speak in soft voices, you see a sudden change. So it's kind of like a polar opposite with Native men um, during this process instead of um, the, the bilagana or the, 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 that other way, um, we see go up emotional response. But for that Native response, it's pretty balanced, it's pretty even, and we see it kind of go down as well too as we um, think about, um, as we think about that emotional response being um, a polar opposite. What's happening during this time, it's not an adrenaline rush, it's a release of these happy happiness hormones. It's a release of this dopamine that we got an animal, we got food, we have hides, we have antlers for deer dances, we have all these great things. And so, this is just my own interpretation. I can't say this is for happening for all Native men or for all um, um, hunting experiences for for other for for in, in across Indian country. But this is my own experience. This is what I observe with other Native hunters go out as well too. It's it's a it's a different response, and I want to explore this more and talk more about this as well. But also. What's happening during these these bonding experience? We see Thosh right here on the screen. I'm holding his little one as well too. And there's a lot of things happening in his brain right now. The release of that oxytocin, the, these these happiness hormones as well. And it's because of those bonds, that attachment that's happening with that young child. And even though baby's asleep right there, there's still um, chemical changes happening there as well too. He's the baby's not baby's comfortable. Baby's warm. Baby's getting that nice pat on the back as well too. Baby's comfortable. It's a different response as if the baby is in a crowded, um, stressful space or is being bothered and, and, and told to do things constantly and demonstrate things constantly. There's a different chemical response. And so that's kind of just a real basic um, tutorial of um, hormones and chemical changes and what's happening in, in the brain. But again, I want to draw attention to what's happening in that male brain. Many of you can probably relate to some uncle or some um, grandfather, a brother, dad, saying a prayer or telling a story or advising. What's special about these times, though, is you see an emotional response in these men talk and sharing stories and advising. You, you feel it in their voice. You feel it in the vibes that they give off as well, the energy they give off. And it's tied back to this as well. When someone's telling you advice and loves you and is feeling all these emotions for you, you hear it, you feel it, you, there, there's, there's medicine in those words going out. And every time I hear these, these Pueblo men, these Pueblo leaders tell these stories or advising, you feel it and you know it, you know it's there. And what's happening in that native male brain, though, is these release of these hormones, of uh, the feel-good hormone, of the, the love hormone as well, too, a love for the people, a love for the roles that they have. 
And so we can talk on and on about this, about what's yeah. happening in the brain as well. But yeah, what I want to also think about too is um, when there aren't times and opportunities for this, what happens when there aren't times for attachment with dad and baby to happen, or if there are other stressors like divorce or separation or um, dad or mom having to go to work or live are different stressors as well. What happens to baby and what happens to that family unit as well too? And what can we do to make that conscious intentional effort to try to restore those bonds and try to, um, find alternatives as well, too, if we need to bring other people in to provide that support to the young yeah. child. Yes. Oh, oh Winston. Baby. Lots of great, yes, lots of great things in there. And as it's funny as you are also kind of um, using us as an example here about those changes that are happening. And I certainly feel those those changes as uh, as we, we are, for, of course, in pregnancy. And just like a lot of our teachings say, right, they say it's not only the woman that's pregnant, it's the man that's pregnant too. The man is, is spiritually pregnant. And so therefore he walks in a different way in the world. He acts a different way. There are certain things he abstains from doing. And, and so, and that's where those changes already start to happening, right? When we under, when we understand that, that mindset and that worldview, I think, I believe what follows that is those also uh, neurobiochemical changes also happen as well. And kind of, um, we create these new neural pathways of understanding. Um, and so, you know, and, and as we get into, you know, this, 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 uh, stage of where baby comes, it intensifies and I feel those emotions. And I just, um, you know, when I, when I'm in this, this, this child rearing phase, I feel really gentle. I feel really kind. I feel really, um, warm in general. And it's this medicine, right. That, they, that comes from our children. And it's those changes too. We can look at it from a spiritual standpoint. We can also look at it from the, the, uh, physiological standpoint. And I believe that they, they complement one another. It's various modes of understanding, but I feel that too. I feel that during this time, um, and I shared about that on the last, um, on this last episode I did, we, I started off just kind of doing talking about this topic here just by myself. And, um, and I, I discussed a little bit about that, about those changes that happen and how, when we are in this child rearing phase, um, we're almost like, uh, I say, we're like, we're in ceremony. We're in, we're, we're walking in a certain way. It's there's medicine all around us and that we have to continue to, to, to understand that. And, it, and, and, and understanding that, prevents fathers from putting themselves in situations where they become in danger or where they become uh, put in situations where they are, are tempted to, to, um, you know, be aggressive to other people, you know, out on the you know, road rage or something, you know, attending, uh, you know, certain kinds of gatherings that might kind of take us out of that phase there. So that's sort of what I'm feeling right now. And I was also looking through the, the handbook in another chapter, and it talked about the changes, the testosterone changes in fathers. And there's a number of different studies that were done across different cultures across the globe that showed a significant, a, 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 a slight lowering of testosterone for um, men who were are in the, currently fathering, childering, and men who are married versus men who uh, were not married or not having children. To me, it made a lot of it made a lot of sense. And these are not significant changes to where you are going to have a hard time with your energy levels, or maybe your muscle mass reduces, you know, or maybe cortisol goes up. It's not those significant, but I believe that those change because it it 
it's a time for for men to we're evolving into this child rearing phase. So I believe that it, it, it does change. It does level out, and I did kind of feel that. So as you're talking about that, you know, I kind of um, I'm certainly feeling that for sure. Um, but I also want to talk about something too that you discussed a little bit throughout your work, and you you mentioned a couple times just now is that is that as we are in this this post colonial era, um, and we know that our roles as father uh, has had to evolve and it has to change different than say, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago, even very recently. Uh, and I always share that, you know, oral tradition tells us over here where I come from that typically the child didn't spend a lot of time with the dad until, you know, about age four, then the, then the child was, especially if it was a boy, then, you know, following what, what the men do. Um, but the father, uh, um, you know, had his day-to-day things, but it's changed. And such as now, my, my instance and your, your, your situation as well, that we have times where we have our children most of the day and they're in these, 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 these very important critical stages. So if you can speak to you know, how you address that in your work and how that's a part of your work too, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, the handbook is, is, is has some highlights some fascinating studies on, um, uh, males and children as well too. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about the study that was done with heterosexual um, and couples and homosexual couples as well too, and the impact on um, on young children as well too, and ability to attach and learn and grow as well too. Is even despite who is raising the child that young child can still grow up to be a functional, um, emotional, and healthy young child, regardless of exposure to that nuclear requirement of male mom, a male father and female mom. I mean, there, there's, there's different um, family members or individuals who can step into those roles as well too. And so, and this is so important. And, and, and as we try to understand the, uh, diversity that exists amongst um, across Indian country. Um, we have single moms, we have single dads raising children, we have blended families, we have grandparents. In my community that I work here, I work with many um, bilingual Navajo English grandparents who are raising grandchildren who are infants, toddlers, and preschoolers as well too. And um, those families are just as healthy as your quote American nuclear family as well too and so that's i guess that's so important when we're when we're doing work with families fathers mothers um, um communities is that we understand that it's going to be quite diverse and um, there's many people playing a, a role in raising young children as well and so there has been a shift over over time as well we've gone from uh, many um, indigenous communities um, um, mirroring and copying um kind of what or having to, I shouldn't say copying, but having to adjust to what um, a mainstream American lifestyle requires as well too. Um, one being the primary breadwinner or someone going off to join the military or someone joining off, going off to um, do some type of a vocational or work training program as well too. As we know, that's that's been important to um, uh, many um, efforts to acculturate, but also to try to um, empower or just stimulate um, social change in certain tribal communities over the past few years. So kind of going off on a tangent there, but um, what, what's important though is realizing that Native men, Indigenous men are having more of a opportunity to impact um, and, and interact with young children as well too. And so 
and, and this, I feel like there's a lot of conflict in um, better understanding and understanding why this is happening and also the um, resistance towards uh, what, what happens when we see a native person being the primary um, caregiver for young children as well too. Because I feel like American culture and Euro Western culture often um, will um, resort to or immediately go to the need for mother and grandmother to always be involved with the young child. That's so true. That's important. We all have the medicine too, but so do men. The father, the grandparent, the brother, the godparent, whatever it is, they have a role too. They have medicine as well too. And uh, what we know from the research and more emerging, emerging research on, um, on fathers and children is that young children can grow up to be healthy. Young children can grow up to know and have a strong cultural identity and thrive and do well even if they're being raised primarily by men or primarily by a male figure as well. And so this gets us thinking just about all types of societal norms on parenting, on fathering, on what children should be doing, what they should be exposed to. Well, let's go way back. Let's go way back to what was happening in traditional native communities. It was a shared collective effort to raise children. That saying that's out there about a it takes a village to raise a child, that's that's our way. That's how it's always been. It takes it takes an entire community, entire village, entire nation, tribal nation to raise these young children. We all have a role in demonstrating the modeling healthy behaviors. We all have a role in supporting children who are at risk. We all have a role in allowing those who are starting their hearing, healing journey to have a space at the fire as well too. And that's what I want to emphasize today is that the, the father, the, the male, um, there's a lot of things happening in that brain, a lot of things happening in their stories. Dash and I can probably share all kinds of stories about our childhood and our teenage life and in our college years and our early adult years too, when we were just trying to figure things out. For me, I, I go back to the positive things I learned from my, my male um, role models in my life, my Che, my uncles, um, other other important members of my community as well. But I also think about the models of inappropriate behavior that I was exposed to as well and how I imitated those. I copied those. I, I did the exact same thing um, that they did as well, too. And so what does that mean now as we talk about healing, we talk about moving forward? We have to acknowledge those things, um, ex uh, understand that there are, that this isn't an excuse, but it, it's that there are external things out of our control as young native boys that impact those decisions we make, whether it's good or bad, there are influences that impact that. So again, it goes back to the importance of that childhood period, those moldable moments when we can actually change how a young male, how a young boy is thinking and understanding the world. And also, what do we need to be doing to help those men who are starting their journeys or are on their journeys to rekindle those relationships, whether it's with their male role models or whether it's with the folks that they're influencing, such as their children, their grandchildren, or children in the community as well. So this is absolutely. It's so much, so much to get into it right there, and too, and you know, just bringing it back to this, this when talking about this subject, it constantly goes back to the role of other people in the community, 
in their, uh, you know, their critical role in the development of, of all children. And even people who the child, the child necessarily doesn't have a relationship with, but sees in the community, maybe the, the relationship is distant. Even those people, I feel from my observation, in my community have an effect, have an impact on that child's worldview and, and, and teaches them how to act. And um, so the, again, it, it really uh, brings us back to this, this, uh, you know, idea about community healing is important as well. Collective healing is important as well. And a part of our wellness model, seven circles of wellness, we have um, one of our circles of wellness that plays a, a critical role on and, and everyone's health and wellness is, is, is family community or your clan, your kinship. And as we know that when our people, when, Clans were created to to help our communities function, right? Everyone had a role. Um, everyone had a certain type of relationship to one another based on their clans. And as we know, some people today follow that and, and some don't follow that, but some of them follow the family names um, as well. And so, you know, I think about that, those experiences for me too, because I want to kind of echo your comments about in the community or how I was fathered. I That's where I learned my role as a father is by watching, but also also have learned what not to do because of some of, the, like you said, inappropriate behavior that I have seen um, and or what little that I may have, you know, endured as well. And I, I think about those things today. And I think this is why it's so important that we are able to look at um, the behavior of men in our communities and be able to discern what is ours? How, what is our way? And what is not our way that we were influenced by the infiltration of Western patriarchal ideas and also what is a result of trauma, historic trauma. And we have to have uh, look at things with a trauma-informed lens field to discern which is ours, what do we continue to bring up and use more of, and what do we uh, uh, co uh, consciously, objectively start to uh, move away from and educate about this is not our way or we don't yell at children or we don't strike children um because we know what happens to them as they start to age and the the behavioral changes the negative behavioral outcomes that happen as a result of that um and we start looking at the fathers in the community who um were able to discipline their their children without without those practices, but through their through their through their behaviors and through um, other types of actions. And so those are things that I'm constantly uh, thinking about myself, and that's been really helpful in my my journey as a fatherhood. As I think back to the memories of that I've had with my dad, that I, I I've been very fortunate that I was raised in you know great household. I have lots of great memories. Um, of course, there were sometimes too that did stick out to me, um, you know, as we all have. And those are the things I remember. And I think this, that cycle is what I have to break as a father. That's the cycle I don't want to perpetuate. What I want to perpetuate is that the positive reinforcement or the positive uh, modeling that my father had did as I was growing up and you brought up hunting. And that's, that was a big one growing up. Um, and I shared some pictures on my social media when I found some photos uh, that my dad had taken of us on one of our hunts. And it was from 1989 and I was like seven years old or something. And I still remember those times. I remember uh, when we got this is a nice big like three by four buck. And I remember all those moments. And 
the the emotion that came from um, you know do, you know uh, being a part of that with my dad and we hiked way into the mountains. We were on a camp there. It was a, a lot of incline, a lot of decline, and it was um, you know a lot of uh, being hungry and and having to have to ration our water. But the changes that that uh, the memories that that created though over time, and so those are so so the things that I'm already working to perpetuate with with Aloe. Like I've taken her on a couple little little mini kind of hunts where I, you know, take her out and, and I have to pretty much have to carry her in certain areas, but I set her under the tree and I, and I tell her what we're doing. We're glassing and we're, she knows what the deer is. She knows what, what the, why is a deer. She knows the difference between the doe uh, and the, the, the uh, kuri buck, the male buck. And so, and she's, she knows to already, like when she sees the wild horse droppings, she already knows what it is. And sometimes she'll smell it before she sees it and she'll go, dad, oh, dad, a horse. Gavio, Gavio, you know, she'll say it. And, and so um, those are sort of the things that I'm already kind of um, working on to, to, to continue to do to maintain those positive uh, worldviews, positive development, the positive interactions that we have together. <clears throat> but so, I mean, even just uh, maybe speak to your own experience as a father. Maybe you might share a story or uh, something like that as well that you are sort of... Uh, carrying on a positive, you know, practice as your father, but maybe you're adding something new to it. Maybe you have a different understanding because of your education or because of the world we live in today. Maybe you have a different take on why it's important to continue a certain fatherhood practice. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Josh, Josh, for those prompts. And I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own, the most memorable experiences I had with, with my father as well, too, who's from Acoma Pueblo. And um, he, I, I live, uh, we live, my, my, my two children and I live just east of Shiprock in a town called Waterflow. It's a small um, farming community, and we, we have a, a farm that we, we call Rainbow Farms. I'm at Sealed Farms. Um, and, and it's just started because when we first moved here earlier this year, uh, we started getting the fields ready, and we use um, um, traditional um, indigenous, um, well, um, traditional Pueblo irrigation flood methods to um, um, farm our air. We don't use heavy machinery. Everything's done by hand. And so there were these hours and hours outside with my young children and my family who were helping us to get the farm ready. Um, there was always rainbows popping up. And, and there was, that's kind of how we got the name for Rainbow Farms. And so I think back to where I got this interest in farming and, and, and always and wanted to return back to the Four Corners area to, to do this. It was because of those memorable and impactful experiences I had with my own dad in Tehachi, New Mexico, of farming, of having the cornfields and having animals and, and gathering and collecting foods as well, too. Those are the most memorable experiences I had growing up, too, about food interactions with food, interaction with poultry and animals gathering eggs and hunting rabbits as well, too. I, um, I have a social media page on Instagram, uh, Indian SLP, and I post a lot of um, kind of my experiences as a father, but also reflections on those memorable, most memorable times I had with my dad and other key uh, male figures in my life as well. And so some of the stories that the experiences that stand out to me now as a father have been around food, food ways, um, hunting and farming and um, doing stuff outdoors as well. And so I, um, I'm, I'm a trained speech language pathologist, a child developmental researcher. I have a fairly decent understanding of what's happening in a child's brain throughout um, infancy into school age years. I have, I was, that, that's what I learned in, in the classroom setting. 
But even to this day, with my children and other children I work with as well, I see these children hit these milestones of first words, first laughs, using these emotions, um, making French friends, understanding who they are within the, within their community or within their 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 space, uh, wherever they're working or if it's in a classroom setting as well. These important milestones that are happening, and the most memorable times I can think of. And that always comes to mind is when my young children were participating in ceremonies. Um, one of the most impactful times to me when I realized I'm a, I'm a father, I'm, I'm important to this young child, was when my son was about four or five years of age and um, he, he's part Laguna Pueblo and he was participating in one of our winter um, deer dances for the first time. And to just go on this journey with him to prepare his dear friend, his dear spirit, to um, dress him, to encourage him, to teach him that he can do this, that he can be strong, he can do this. That was, and to see this young boy um, join these larger deer dancers and to get lost amongst this little herd dancing in the traditional songs was probably one of the most impactful times I've had as a, as a, as a young father as well. Because I realized that this young boy listened to me, that I, I taught him something, and he went off and demonstrated it on his own, and he was off doing these doing this dance. And um, same thing with my daughter as well too. For the the first time, went off to school, um, the first time for um, um, going returning back to um, our, our our traditional homelands as well too, and being able to show her and letting her make these connections as well too. I have some um, posts on my social media account as well of her looking at pictures of um, deer and looking at the sales ad as well too for like rifles and bows as well too and her making those connections there and it's like how did she learn these things where did she get all this knowledge from where are these routines coming from it was from exposing her to those healthy those important bonding experiences that are already coming out in her expression, things she's reflecting on and talking about. And that's when I really have those moments of, man, I'm a father, even though I have a 10 year old right now, I'm still, I still have those moments now, but I'm a father, I'm impactful. This, this little human is important and um, they're learning a lot from me. And so that gets me thinking again about, I need to watch what I say, watch what I do, demonstrate healthy, healthy coping behaviors, and even down to food as well, too. They're, they're absorbing and watching everything that we're doing. And so I have a lot of silly stories that I reflect on and post, too, about the kid, my kids copying what I do, or um, I'm asking about what I'm doing as well. And again, it's just a reminder of how moldable these young children are when it comes to learning and thriving is that. We as their caregiver, we as fathers are modeling and helping them to co-regulate and to, and to learn. So that really gets me thinking about how do we change health behaviors in our indigenous communities across Indian country? A lot of the things that we're doing now as wellness individuals, researchers, is we're waiting for a lot of these um, chronic diseases to happen. We're not doing stuff to prevent them from happening. And so we're starting to get, her, get a better understanding of, at preventive, preventative health and what we need to do to help restore those natural routines, those important routines that can allow for um, 
learning of healthier ways of eating, of playing, of interacting with other individuals as well. And so I think, and again, I'm a little biased because I'm an early childhood researcher and I think a lot of things happen early on, but let's, let's take a step back and think about what's happening to parents and young children and when a young child is born and what's happening over those next few years as well, that we can change developmental trajectory. We can change a lot of unhealthy behaviors. We can adjust that cycle. We can flip that cycle of recurrent um, risky health behaviors. Now we can take that conscious or intentional effort to change some of those things, whether it's not spanking a child or whether it's focusing on attachment and bonding with the young child. Now that we have more opportunities, we have more understanding of who plays a role in raising young children as well. But also, let's take a chance to, let's take an opportunity to understand what happens when that male person is not in the picture and what happened there. Not saying that everyone needs to go back to having a male, female family role, but who needs to play a role in helping that child get that medicine, whether it's a grandfather, an older brother, or some other male figure who can come in as well to provide that support as well. It's important. And um, what other factors do we need to think about when helping those individuals who are trying to fill those gaps or return to that, return to that sacred space as well, whether it's a father or, or someone else, a stepfather coming in to step in. Those are tough journeys, and Dash and I can share a lot of our own obstacles and all those things too as well, but we know they're there. We acknowledge them, and we work through them, and we know that a lot of um, other Native men have more obstacles than us as well, more things that they're working through as well. But let's find a way to give them, a, let's give them space. Let, let's, that's how we heal as a community, not by putting down one another, not by um, resorting to what colonization has has contributed to toxic masculinity, um, the absent male father, those concepts are, are not our way. That Those words are not our way. We know that things go away for whatever reason, things, things happen, but um, we don't need to put down um, the, the situation. Let's, let's find a way to restore, revitalize, uh, and focus on that collective community response to our youth as well. Because they, they, they truly are our future. And, and, and that's kind of cheesy and corny to say, but it's true. These, these, the, they are the, the knowledge keepers. They are learning these ways. And if, if, if we weren't here, uh, our generation weren't here, they would be the ones to carry on some of that knowledge as well too. So mm-hmm. let's rethink early childhood education. Let's rethink family interventions. Let's rethink what's happening in the classroom as well because letter shapes and numbers are important, but also cultural identity is important. Bonding mm-hmm. with your caregivers is important. Knowing what role, what space you have within the community is important as well too. And so when I think when we prioritize and focus on those things, a lot of good things happen. There's a a space at that fire pit for fathers to return, for mothers to return, for um, other community members to come together as well, too, to uplift and hold that young child up as that young child learns and grows and learns to love and interact with their environment as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to also just before we end here, I want to speak to some of the things from my own experience, what you said and you know, thinking about my bonding with with aloe out in the field over this summer and this fall, and we were growing our corn and our squash, and um, 
you know, she always goes out there to help to plant the first couple of seeds. And now she's much older. So I'm really looking forward to the next planting season. And fostering seeds with young children is a very important and critical, I think, in, in healing for everyone and for the you know, positive development of, of children. And I've definitely have seen that for children to learn to foster and take care of things, to take, to plant a seed and foster its growth is, um, it's a lot like taking care of kids, right? We have to feed it and got to take care of it. We have to water that. We have to make sure that things are, are okay in that area. We have to sing to it. We have to talk to them. We're planting the corn and the squash and the beans and all that. And, and, and I watch the aloe go through and I tell her, okay, go through and say hi to the hoon, the corn, and she'll go and she pets the leaves. And to her, the under, she's understanding that this, this thing is growing. This is a real organic being spirit that's growing. And I seen the, what it fosters in her little expression, uh, you know, and also too, same thing with the animals. Like when we'll go practice the deer target, sh she'll watch as we shoot the deer, but when we go to pull the arrows out, she put both of her hands on the deer, the target. So she understands compassion, but understands that there's a complex thing. And so I bring this up because I always say that when we dive into indigenous food practices, this is a great segue to healing in all aspects of, of our, our, our life ways as native people, our kinship, clanship relations, um, you know, being the, 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 uh, the ability to feed ourselves and on our own terms in a way that is culturally relevant. It's all the bonding that happens during that time there to me is very empowering. And I, and like you said, with childhood development, um, we should in native communities continuing to be working in these areas and how do we bring those in as you said colors and numbers yes are important we can learn those out on the field we can learn those with the food and the beans and all that counting um and we do that all the time um so i'm you know i'm with you right there and i'm glad that you're an advocate of that uh, and i hope that that movement in native country continues to evolve in terms of um in regards to childhood development and bringing a lot of our original cultural practices into it um so before we end right here, I want to do come bring it back to this question. And someone had a question and I wanted to, to honor them. Um, they said, so if indigenous determinants of health were guided by indigenous principles and values, how would this look different from social work and moral determinants of health? Um, I'll let Josh answer that. But before he, he does, I, I will just add that. I think um, right off the bat, I think about um this concept in, in, in many um, Native people is that when something is void of spirituality, it's broken. It, it ceases to function. And I believe that that's sort of the difference when we're looking at determinants of health from a Native perspective is that we understand that there's a spiritual understanding, there's a spiritual purpose for everything that we do, as well as a practical. Um, and spiritual is practical. And, and so I will just say that right off the bat. And I think that, of course, the more conventional approach to, um, you know, this, this matter in regards to public health in that field might be void of that. Um, and that's where indigenous people use frameworks like that and bringing a lot of their values and their understandings and their practices, teachings around kinship, clanship, teachings around connection to earth and food, um, all of that. But I'll let Josh go ahead and give his take on that, and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Yeah, sure. That's a great question to end with, too. And I think um, it, it's a the response I'll give will be a starting point or a prompt to whoever's asking this question and to all the listeners as well, too, about who, what influences health. And in public health, the social determinants of health principle is, is, is tied to a kind of a colonized kind of uh, interpretation as well that things like high school diplomas, college education, having a job where you live, all those factors impact health. 
very true across Indian country, indeed. But there's also these other factors as well, too, um, knowledge of culture, um, their connection to the earth. We know that environmental issues impact uh, individuals' health. So I, I guess when we coin or we use that term indigenous health, I, it's, a, it's a prompt to think bigger as well, too, and to expand your understanding of what is education. Education level definitely impacts health. We know that someone who goes off to college has a better likelihood to um, have stronger access to um, food and it's all tied to income and all these other factors as well. We know that someone who lives in, in closer to healthier foods will make help, may make healthier food decisions because they're not in a food desert. We know those are important as well. Going back to the education piece, if that Native person, if they're fortunate to have knowledge or the fortunate to be able to relearn a certain skill tied to hunting or food gathering or they're intentional about learning a new parenting style that's going to make them a better person make them a stronger person uh, we know that that's going to impact overall health we know that individuals who um, return to the earth and have um, important ties, whether it's in ceremony or as part of their job to be outdoors more, we know that they're healthier and happier. We also know that parents and individuals who, um, despite what bad things have happened to them, if they make that conscious effort, if they have those resources, have that family support to um, return to those indigenous, more traditional ways of child rearing practices, we know that all that's going to have a profound impact on those individuals as well. So, so it, it's I want to say it's not different. I say indigenous determinants em encompasses a lot more of these Western interpretations of determinants of health behaviors. And when we talk about the indigenous way, the indigenous interpretation of this concept, it's bigger. It focuses on community. It focuses on community levels of healing. It focuses on all these other factors that impact Native health today as well that doesn't impact the, the, the average American as well. Things like treaty rights, things like being a beneficiary to Indian health services, things like acculturation, things like blood quantum, all those factors, racism, discrimination, um, pipelines, and throw, we can go on and on and on and on, all those things impact health. So when we're trying to say indigenous determinants of health, it encompasses all those factors as well too, and they can all be categorized in different ways as well. But those social determinants of health that we know from public health, from, from social work and from so, um, social connectedness theory, all those factors, those all impact health as well too. So yeah, great question. So maybe we think about young children, what impacts young children, what impacts our families, our fathers, and how do we restore or how do we um, revitalize those healthy things that men need to be doing with young children. And I guarantee we'll see some changes in, in our children in our communities. Thank you for that response. That was a great, great one. And I can tell that there's uh, you know, a lot more that can be described zooming into that very topic right there but so i want to thank you man thank you brother for coming on here and sharing your knowledge and it's good to see you again man i, I can't believe it's been uh, you know a year since the last time i seen you we worked together last december mid-december um out there at prairie band of potawatomi um and so that i can't believe the year has just flown by and so um 
I want to just thank you, man, for this, this conversation. It looks like we got a lot of great responses here. People enjoyed the conversations and people are asking for another follow-up to it. So uh, perhaps here in the near future, we'll jump on again and discuss more and be able to pick some topics that we maybe didn't cover or maybe we can expand upon. But thanks a lot for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch and, you know, continue to take care of you and, you know, your family. And we'll continue to um, pray and send good thoughts your guys' way and, as you get into your, your, your ceremonies coming up here this winter and stuff. Okay. Thank you, brother. And same with you as well. Be well and um, let's keep in touch.